And so now we come to the story that begins the cry of the people, the majority, for a king. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which I've done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. As a footnote to verse 9, because we're not going to look at the other passages beyond here tonight. He said what the kings would do is they're going to, the kings, they're going to take. They're going to take your best young men to be in the army. To, they're going to, he's going to take your best daughters to work in his palace. He's going, to, he's going to take. In fact, the word take is used in no less than eight times. He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. It never says he's going to give. It just says he's going to take. Like, that's earthly kings. And when we say king, we know in the biblical sense, a king can be like almost like a governor or a mayor in the understanding like the different kings of Edom back in the book of Genesis and there's kings of the Ammonites and you know Barak is a king of the Moabites and you know just, just different kings so in our mind we historically think of a king like King Victoria Queen Victoria or King Charles or King Charlemagne or kings that we know in history that maybe we learn when we're paying attention in school but the word king here is really just a human being to, that you can see who tells you what to do. That's the context. So the people of Israel, after being in the promised land for three centuries plus, maybe four centuries, having had judges like Gideon and Samson, Samuel being the last judge and also a prophet, now we come to the king's. And this first king they asked for, God's going to give him Saul. Now, the description of Saul is that he, was, he came from a wealthy family. So he comes from an affluent family. So often is the case in politics. He's also taller than anyone else. And in the Bible tells us, the Holy Spirit tells us, he's the most handsome man in the land. So, I mean, he is just, he's just born to be a human government, you know. He's tall. He's good looking. And he comes from money and affluence, and he's going he's gonna to be their king. The interesting thing is that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And we had seen uh, back in Genesis that the scepter will not depart from Judah. So God prophetically spoke in Genesis 49 through Jacob before he stepped into eternity, that, who's also Israel, and the 12 sons are his sons, that the, reign, the true rulers of Israel would come from Judah. The scepter to rule like a king would come from Judah. So it is interesting that the first king later on in chapter 9 is revealed to us is King Saul from Benjamin. Good looking, tall, handsome from an affluent family. That's our background to all this. And it brings us comparative kings because really the Lord is the king. God is king. 
he has his throne, right? We see in Revelation 4, he sits on his throne. And whatever thrones king can, kings can come up with, how will they compare with God's throne? The rainbow, the glory, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, very descriptive there. And even like, for example, in Isaiah, when he sees the Lord in his glory, he's like, whoa, and the train of his robe fills the, the temple. And he's, he's like, woe is me, for I am undone. And whenever anyone really sees God, the sense not in actual image, but more in a because no one has seen God and lived, so we, he's revealed to us through the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's at the right hand of the Father and has his throne as well. But the throne of God is so glorious as it's described to us, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. Now, we get a description of Solomon's throne in Kings. And Solomon was like the smartest man, the richest man, the most powerful man. <laughs> and so, you know, Solomon's, when people think of earthly kings, in different cultures, Solomon usually makes a short list of famous kings. Solomon is that great king. And we understand what his throne is described like. We've all probably seen movies. The Ten Commandments, the original one, Cecil B. DeMille with Yul Brenner as Pharaoh. And he had his throne. You know, he, he had his throne in that movie. I've watched a lot of Russian movies where they have the czar. So there's Ivan the Terrible or, or there's Peter the Great's throne. And so I have visuals, and of course, if you watch any of the the British stuff, they always have these different Queen Victoria things or Queen Elizabeth stuff, so you'll see her on her throne. So it's really important, just to begin with, to contrast kings, because in this text, they rejected God, Jehovah, who's king over them, who has been guiding them for 400 years in the land, plus for 400 years in captivity in Egypt, and the 40 years in transition— He's their king from the time he called their father out of Ur the Chaldeans, modern Iraq, to the promised land, gave it to him, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons. He's their king. He's their authority. He's who rules over them. God is the king in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Literal people, literal garden, time, space, and matter. And he, he gave them a choice, and he's their king, and he walked in the garden with them. He ruled over them. This is the tree of life. This is where we have fellowship. This is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is where you no longer under my reign and you reject my reign. So from there in the dawn of creation in the garden to this point, God of covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, and now Israel, Mount Sinai, all they did, he gave them the tabernacle, represents things in heaven from his throne room. And here is this apex in human history with the people of covenant, where collectively, like a democracy or like the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union is, is a union of Soviets, the Bolsheviks, and the hammer and sickle represents the people, their productivity with, you know, iron building and the wheat, the hammer and sickle. Thus, if you know, understand the old Soviet Union flag, it represents that. And it's idea that the people have uh, equity and equality, but of course, people, that never really happens because people always take from other people, like 50 million people died under Stalin, for example, doesn't work. And we also know Jesus says that wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction, many go thereby, narrow is the gate that leads to life. So we can be pretty certain in human history that the majority is usually wrong and the minority is usually right. In an upside-down world of the first century, the Church of Jesus Christ, when the believers had to decide, do we bow the knee to Caesar or bow the knee to Jesus, of course, the church chose Jesus. 
And people like Caesar, they're kind of like Haman in the book of Esther. It's not enough that 99.9% of the people bow down to you because you're narcissistic. Everyone has to bow down to you. So all 100 people. So Mordecai, of course, you know, Haman should have been satisfied to be so high up there in the Medo-Persian court, but it's just, it's just not enough because it's that one Jew not bowing down to him. That'll drive a king nuts. So the Caesars, for 300 years, attacked the early church because the church refused to put Caesar above Christ. And even when they tried to capture Jesus and trap him, they said, you know, the image of Caesar, like, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And he said, show me the coin. Render to Caesar things that are Caesar, to God the things that are God. And God will always reign, Christ will always be over earthly kings when the two are in conflict and against each other. And of course, God appoints kings and brings down kings, queens as well. So in this text, we have two kings. We have God over Israel, God of their covenant, who they're rejecting, and their desire for a king other than God to rule over them. And then we have the warning from God through Samuel to tell them what's going to happen when you choose a king other than me. So we have God as the king, because verse 6 says, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king. But here, I highlighted give us a king in blue. That's always my first point. Because give us a king, they already had a king. That's where Jesus is in this text. They already had a king. Their covenant is all about Jesus. The messianic line through Ruth that we just studied is through the house of Jesse. It's Jesus. Their king is in their midst. God said their king would come from the tribe of Judah. Their king is coming soon enough. But they couldn't wait for God's timing for those things to come to pass. Because God in one generation later is going to make a covenant with David that his, his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and it will never end. But that's through Judah, like God said a thousand years before this. So I find it interesting that when they rejected God being their king, he said, you want a king? I'll give you a king, but he's not my king. When you want a king according to your flesh and according to worldliness and your carnal desires and be just like the world, when you're not called to be just like the world, we're in the world but not of the world, right? Like, you want... You want if you want that king to rule over you, that king's never going to be guided and governed by me. So I'm going to give you a king from the tribe of Benjamin. He's going to look like your king. He's going to be good looking. He's going to come from money, the things that people understand, right? What do we understand with our naked eyes? Good looking and money. <laughs> right? Hey, that's, that's cross-cultural. You can watch movies in Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Russian, German, Italian, French. You can watch, listen, Human race understands two things very clearly. Good looking and money. So, when we look for kings and we look for power, so often we look for people like that to fit that bill. And it would seem right now as we look at our world, so many of the world leaders, they're like kings. Now, Merkel was like a queen, but she's gone. But they're like kings. And they come to power, and they like power, and they exert power, and they like to tell you what you can do, and what you can think, and what you can't do, and what you can't think. And they take, and they take, and they take, and they take. They take your freedom of choice. They take your freedom of speech. They take your freedom of religion. They take your freedoms. They take your money. That's what they do. Or they freeze it. It's what they do, which is the same as taking it. Those are the kings of the earth. 
They take, they take, they take, they take, they take. Even the best kings take, 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 take. Peter the Great was awesome, but that dude taxes people almost to death. But when he died, there was no debt in Russia, and there was a, a navy where there had been no ships previously. They became a world power under Peter the Great. But they take. That's what, that's what they do. God so loved the world, he gave his son. So God to the church gives us his king. God to the world, he gives us his king, Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing contrast? Like God's, God gives. Like what can we bring the Lord except our faith and our obedience? That's why we're told in Romans 12 to present our, ourselves as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service because of amazing grace that's covered in the first eight chapters of Romans. So it says here, give us a king. But we would say in the church tonight, we have a king. We have a king. And we're going to have, every generation of the church has this battle of, you know, do, do, we, do we bow down to Jesus as our final king or do we bow down to man as our final king? And every generation of the church has to make difficult choices. I think of Croy Tim Boom there in the Netherlands during the Nazi occupation when they're told you can't have radios to hear news. Of course, kings always want to control the storyline, right? We're watching that right now. And you have to turn in all the Jews and all this stuff. And they, they had this secret room. That's why their movie's called The Hiding Place in the book. And they had the room where they hid the Jews, their neighbors. And there's a higher law always. It's like Rahab hiding the spies in the book of Joshua. There's always a higher law. You watch the movie Hotel Rwanda. It's very powerful. It's somewhat graphic, but it's a true story. And the higher law was the owner of the Rwanda Hotel had to go against the UN mandate and harbor over 400 uh, it's the Hutsis and the Tutsis, the Civil War in Rwanda back in the 90s. And he risked his life and harbored hundreds of them because to not harbor them, they would have been slaughtered in, in outside the walls of the hotel. And Nick Nolte's in the movie, and he plays, he plays the director for the UN, and he's a rule follower, and he's going to follow the rules by turning these people in to be slaughtered by their enemies because he's going to obey the UN no matter what. And my wife watched this movie in college because it was about uh, ethics, it was in, in ethics. It was an ethics lesson on the higher law of doing what's right. And historically in the church, so often the church has to decide, there comes a point where we decide, it, you know, we want to serve Caesar, we want to pay our taxes. The Bible tells us to do that. I always pay my taxes exactly. I, I declare everything. I do everything as best I can. If Caesar shows up here tomorrow, I'll be like, hey, yo, what's up, Caesar? You want to see the books? You know, like, uh, you want to see my own? You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, that's how we want to be. But... But Caesar doesn't have dominion in this room. Caesar doesn't have dominion over this word. Caesar doesn't have dominion over our conscience and our heart and our ability to, to have freedoms to make choices and to have dissension and to discuss things. And therein is the problem for the church. Historically, church history, this is a challenge every generation. And we find ourselves in the midst of it. And here in this text, they had a great king. God himself was their king from the throne room of Revelation 4 and the son, Jesus Christ, Revelation 15, the one that's worthy to take the scroll. He, they had their king, but they had to serve him by faith. They had to see him by faith. They had to live by faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. And even in Hebrews 11, all those that are justified in the Old Testament are justified by faith. And they were looking to Jesus as a shadow of things to come, but he's the fullness. So every act of faith in the Old Testament, beginning with Noah, Abel. Beginning with Abel, he's the first one in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. Every act of faith in Hebrews 11, 
is Old Testament, and every one of those acts of faith is declaring, pointing to Christ, faith in Christ. That's what we're told. And even as the Jews were led through the Red Sea, it's a, it's a baptism of Moses, but these things speak of Christ. For when they drank from the water, it was what? The living water was Christ. They drank from that rock, which is Christ. So the entire human history where people live by faith under the king, God himself, they're blessed, and they're always living by faith. And so here we are tonight, the church of Jesus Christ, living by faith under the king. And so the positive in verse 6 really is they say, give us a king to judge us, which seems negative in the context, but they already had a king. And that's the king, give us a king is that God already gave them a king. He was their king, but it required faith. And it's, it, takes, it takes no effort to look to an earthly king to tell you what to do and surrender everything to them. And it, of course, we know with the great reset that's going on with the political agenda of these globalists is you'll own nothing and you'll feel good about it. This is so obvious. I've studied this stuff. I don't need Jack Hibbs or Charlie Kirk to tell me this stuff. I already know it. I've been studying this stuff for the last two years. These people, they want to rule the world. And they want to have no private ownership. And everything they want to do goes completely against the word of God and the principles of the word of God. From start to finish. It's evil. It's diabolical. And at some point, someone's going to succeed with that plan. Because the Antichrist is going to rule the world and no one can buy or sell he's going to freeze you on swift he's going to block your funds in canada and you can't do anything if you want to eat a piece of bread he's going to determine it and we're so close to being able to do that which is really another bible study it's a prophecy update but these are where these kings are going and they're flexing and doing it right now but our king gives us choice that's why in romans 8 paul says that what can separate us from the love of god in christ jesus can famine no peril no sword no I've read books like Imprisoned for Christ in Iran. I've read Martyrs of the Fox's Book of Martyrs. I've read Martyrs of the 20th Century. And you find, and I've read Prokhanov in Russia, how many times he was imprisoned by the Russian government, first by the Tsar, by um, Tsar, the last Tsar, Nicholas, and then he was imprisoned by the Bolsheviks, by Lenin and then Stalin. Like he got it coming and going. But he never capitulated his faith or his confidence in the Lord. And though he died in exile in Germany at the rise of Hitler in 1934, he had faith for his people that there's a better future for the church in Russia than the one he had known up to that day. Isn't that amazing and beautiful? See, when Jesus is your king, and he is our king, he's Lord over our mind, our spirit, and our body. Now, they can lock us up, they can take our assets, but ultimately, and they can do, you know, people when they imprison people, they do things to work, with, work against their mind, you know, to break them, try and break your will. John McCain's book when he's in prison in Vietnam because he was the son of the military commander for the Vietnam War and the Navy during the Vietnam War. I don't know if you know that. But John McCain, who's now in eternity, he was the son, his dad was director of the Navy during the Vietnam War. So when his plane was shot down in Vietnam, he was a high-level prisoner. So the whole time he's imprisoned in Vietnam, which was for years, the, the VC there, Hanoi Hilton, which is where he was at, tried to break him, break him, um, Break him, be the NBA, not the VC, but break him, break him, break him. So they did all these dementing. In his book, he talks about it, like locked in a box for three weeks. So if you're ever locked in a box for three weeks, or in a death camp like Corey Tim Boom, or you're in prison like Prokhanov, and they're gunning people down every night outside your cell, which is a true story for Prokhanov, early 20s during the Bolshevik Revolution when they're killing everybody, but they didn't kill him. Just know that no one can ever separate you from King Jesus being your king. But the king of my heart, be the wind inside these sails. He's, he's, he's always with us. That's what he was for Israel. 
Every person that arose at this time in time, space, and matter in their generation, about 150 BC, every person in Israel under covenant, they could know the king and walk with him by faith and trust him by faith to provide rain for their food, protection from their enemies and their adversaries, and then he would trust them. And by the way, 300 years after this, Isaiah, in the midst of a chapter of judgment, chapter 2, all these judgments coming, he says, say to the righteous, it's crazy, this whole chapter is judgment, and this random verse, say to the righteous that it will be well with you, and you will eat the reward of your actions. In other words, it can all be going to hell around you, but God promises to take care of his people no matter what's going on. Say to the righteous that it will be well with you. So Jesus, King Jesus would say to us in an uncertain world with an uncertain future and all the stuff that's going on around us, say to my people that it will be well with you and you'll eat the rewards of your works, your actions. Because for the church, it's always a future and a hope. Always a future and a hope. The best truly is always yet to come for the church. It may not come this side of eternity, but we're going to glory. And we talk about this. We don't even know. We cannot picture how great the glory is, but it's a glorious glory. It's beyond comprehension. Jennifer was telling me about reading in the Sabina Wormbrandt book, uh, The Pastor's Wife, that she had a ministry, this woman that God gave her a vision in her dreams of heaven. And Jennifer read this to me and said, like, do you think that's what heaven's like? I'm like, well, C.S. Lewis in the last battle, when they go to the real Narnia, which is his idea of heaven, he has it in quantum layers, and it's, it's, it's multidimensional. And it, when I read it, my mind's uh, uh, stimulated. It's, it's, it's the creativity and the imagination of my mind is on Mach 5 when I read C.S. Lewis describe heaven. But it, no matter what it is, it, God could give us a dream of heaven. Paul had a vision of heaven, but he said, I can't tell you about it because the moment I speak about it, it's demeaned in its quality and value. The moment that vision touches earth, one word, da, da, niet, you know, yes and no in Russian, it's just, it's just, see, no, you know, like, it just, it doesn't matter, like, it, it's just, we lose it. So, the people of faith serve a king, and he's the king of our mind and the king of our hearts, and his word is our constitution, his spirit is our enablement, and his promises are our strength, and we fear no evil. We're bold as lions, the Bible tells us. And courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the ability to stand in the midst of it with Jesus being your peace. Because he'll keep the imperfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusts in he. How many kings of the world can say that to their uh, inhabitants, to their citizens? Stiff upper lip. That's what the British used to say. Stiff upper lip, lads. Stiff upper lip. It's like, you know, that doesn't always work. But Jesus says, my peace I give you. My peace I leave you. The peace that rules in our hearts surpasses understanding. To be anxious for nothing but let the peace of God rule in your hearts through, you know, through Christ Jesus. Yeah. See, when Jesus is our king, we have peace. Because he's the king of peace. He's the king of Salem. He's the king of peace. They gave up peace and that king for a much uh, inferior version. I mean, all their faith to this day in Israel in the covenant, was looking unto Jesus because all things are pointing toward Jesus. So they gave up their king and instead of having Jesus in a shadow of things to come, they get Saul from Benjamin, a narcissist of the highest level and probably biologically a psychopath 
and perhaps environmentally a sociopath as well. Because normal politicians, though they want to, they don't throw spears at people playing music for them to calm them down in their office. And no man in his right mind is going to cut down 70 priests of the Lord. Something has to be very wrong in your head to do that. Let alone going to the witch at Endor. And what happens when you go to witch at Endor? You actually get Samuel or something. Who even knows what that's about? We'll get to it soon enough. But like, whoa, like what is up with that? That's a story coming in the future. He just was not right in the head. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say the difference between a genius and insanity is a really thin line. Did you get the feeling there's some geniuses out there pushing buttons right now? And you're not sure which yard they're in, and there's no fence separating the yards. Genius, insanity, thin line, no fence between the yards. We live in a perilous time. Now, some people are obviously not so smart, and they make it in politics too. And you know, when you listen to it for one minute, you realize they're not saying anything that means anything. I can't, what are they saying? Limericks, riddles, and spaghetti words. Like it's, a, it's a new language of this generation. It's like limericks, riddles, and spaghetti words. They didn't say anything. I appreciate people say, don't do that or we're going to do this. Oh, like that's better. At least you understand what they're saying. That's what you get with earthly kings. When Jesus is speaking to us through his word by the spirit, it's yes and amen with all of his promises. So I remind us tonight we can never go wrong with Jesus enthroned in our mind, in our hearts, and filter everything by your faith in Jesus and the promises of his word that you see that affects your world. And do not be moved. Because Jesus said to be watching and ready for his return. And that doesn't change. If it's unicorns and daisies on a sunny day in Kauai, or if it's the apocalypse in Eastern European, either way, Jesus is our future and our hope, and he has us, and we can trust him. They had a king. We have a king. Don't let the kings of the earth move us from the supreme place in our heart belonging to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who is our king. May this building always be a place where you know you're under the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world, lest they take it by force. But you say rightly that I am a king. Now, God said through Samuel, they've not rejected you, but me, to not reign over them. And this is where the world is going. This is clearly where the world ends up. The entire world is unified when the Christ comes back, that they don't want Christ reigning over them. In Psalm chapter 2, we're told, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing against the Lord and his anointed? It goes on to say the nations gather against him, and it says this king, God's king, is his son, and that the world should pay homage to his son because they're accountable to his son. Kiss the son, pay homage while he is near. But alas, the world is going to rebel against the reign of Christ. Now, nations and kings and governors and senators and rulers and presidents and prime ministers, they might let Christ reign at a time in their life to the benefit of all who are under their legal authority that they have in their political positions, but in many cases they do not. But in the end, the kings of the world are going to gather together in full rejection. And I, and I, I wish I could tell you some other thing, but I tell you what the Bible says. In the last days, the kings of the world gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
And until he comes for his church, we really are his, you know, we represent Christ. We're the kingdom. And Jesus said to his apostles that night when he would go to the cross the same day, because their day began at night, that if the world hates you, if it hates me, it's going to hate you. So don't be surprised. So we serve the world like we're talking about, like things that we can do for Ukraine or these other things, Ukrainian refugees coming into Hungary. We just got all seek the Lord, serve the Lord, trust in the Lord, and be the Lord as best we can. Be, be the best Jesus we can be because we're citizens of his kingdom and we're ambassadors of his kingdom and we're going to do the best we can. But we're going to want to choose Christ and we're not going to reject his reign over our life. And, and people reject his reign over their life for various reasons. There are various people that say they're Christians, but they're not governed by Christ. There's so many people that say they believe in God and, and that they believe in Jesus, but they're not governed by Jesus. Their thoughts are not thinking thoughts after God. Their hearts aren't directed by his word. They're not inviting him to be Lord of their life. And they truly do reject his reign over their life. What human beings do is when they say they're Christians and they reject Christ's reign and what Christ wants to do in their life to make things right in their life, they just, they tend to spin it. They tend to spin it. In, in ministry, you get this all the time, but like, we justify ourselves and we create a faulty theology so we can live with our conscience and then we end up totally living in sin thinking that we're right with the Lord. And a sane, rational person becomes insane and irrational and sometimes wants to kill the pastor as a messenger of truth or the deacon's wife or whoever because the mind betrays itself when the conscience is seared by saying you serve Jesus when you live for sin and you go to another king and you become the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it so when our heart goes away from King Jesus to kings of the world that tell us what we want to do or tell us what we want to hear contrary to God's word we we, we compromise our convictions and our compass and our measure of truth and we have to live with ourselves. So, for example, going back to Corrie ten Boom, when her and her family risked their lives to hide the Jews, which is just common sense for people that love Jesus and understand the value of life, they had ministers tell them, their minister tell them, and it's true, that, you know, the Bible says we're supposed to submit to governing authorities, so you're supposed to submit to the Nazis and hand over your Jews. And people like that live with themselves like that. And then when Europe was rebuilt after World War II, these people were still in their pulpits. In fact, you know, a lot of the SS, unfortunately, became law enforcement in eastern Germany, and they did dirty business for the Stasi, the East, eastern German you know, secret police, which was really in cahoots with the KGB, which is now the FSB. And by the way, you do know Putin was once the director of FSB, FESBA. If you know what FSB is, that's current KGB. By the way, side note, when Putin was KGB, his handlers, it's in his biography, his handlers said he was very dangerous because he had an absence of fear where most people have fear. Now, that's coming from his KGB handlers. They said, he's a genius. He speaks five languages fluently. And he plays chess at the highest level, literally. But his handlers, when he was young, said he's, he's dangerous because where you should have fear he does not have it. 
And after the fall of the Soviet Union, because he's a true Soviet, he's been working all this time through the ranks to become president. You know, he won the election a year ago where he's voted indefinite president until 2035. He's a czar. When I was in Russia, the T-shirts had said, Czar Putin in the airport. Russians love heavy-handed leader. He's a czar. But he was the director of FESBA, the secret police, before he became prime minister. You want that kind of king? And by the way, just to talk about religious leaders, the Metropolitan is the equivalent of the Pope to the Catholics or the Archbishop of Canterbury to the Church of England. So the Metropolitan is a religious term for the highest person in the Russian Orthodox Church. The Metropolitan has already come out. And, you know, it's a state church again in Russia, by the way, right? It's a state church. You know that. Putin reaffirmed the state church about four years ago. The Metropolitans come out saying, this is a just war. We're in the right. Ukraine's Russia. So the religious church, church, state church in Russia, backing Putin. And this is what I mean. If you're a Christian in Russia, you have to decide, is the Metropolitan the higher law for religious believers, Christians in Russia, for me to determine? Or is my own conscience a higher law and I'm getting in my car and driving to Finland? Or I'm going to stay here and figure out a way to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. See, we all, I think, the longer we live, the more likely we'll be tested as to who really is our king. And we do not want to reject Christ as our king. We do not want to reject Christ as our king. We want to respect kings as best we can. Really, we do. Honestly, we do. Like, we really do. We want to trust the process as best, certainly in our country too. But I think it's pretty hard to get to eternity at the age of 80 and not have to decide really at some point who you bow the knee to, King Jesus or King Caesar. I think that comes ahead for most people in most generations. It certainly would if you lived in Pakistan right now or Egypt or Saudi Arabia. It just seems a lot more likely for Americans than ever before, doesn't it? It certainly is already in play for Canadians. You know, during the summer of BLM, they burned down all those churches in Canada, and everyone got away with everything, and no one got held accountable for anything. You take a stand for freedom of choice, your assets are frozen, and you got to run on the bank. You know there's a run on the Canadian banks two weeks ago. The top five banks, when all the assets were frozen, for anyone that identified with the truckers, every single person, businesses, individuals, Everyone's assets were frozen by Trudeau and emergency measures, mandates that he made. But that same weekend, every Canadian with common sense tried to get their money out of the bank. And the top five banks, the five biggest banks in Canada had to close on that weekend. You missed it because it happened on the weekend. I didn't miss it because I'm up all night. All five banks went down with technical difficulties. There was a run on the cash, the Canadian national banks, central banks. And then on Monday, Trudeau backed down and released the frozen assets and stood down. Hey, that's the day we live in. That's the time we live in. That's the time we're living in right now, in Jesus' name. And these people, are all, they're all kind of working for the same people. And that's not meant to unsettle you. It's just meant to affirm you to be bowing the knee to Jesus. To bow the knee to Jesus. Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I prefer to be in front of the plotting and planning of evil men. But, you know, a lot of people thought they were in front of Hitler in the 30s, and they weren't. 
And a lot of people thought they're in front of Stalin in the 50s, and they weren't. So who knows? The Lord knows, right? What if you're Cambodian when Pol Pot comes to power in the Khmer Rouge? You try to be in front of it, but what can you do? A lot of people in Ukraine two weeks ago thought they're in front of everything, and what can you do? So if our faith is a firm foundation in Jesus, we're serving the right king, we do the best we can with the kings of the earth, and come hell or high water, Jesus reigns on our heart, and we'll always have a peace. And, and we stand, as the Bible says, having done all stand. But we don't want to reject the real king, the eternal king, whose throne is a rainbow with glory in the four living creatures for temporal kings who live in bunkers when it's all going down. You know, how the Bible says in the, in the end that all the nations hide in the caves. You know that most of the leaders in the world have deep underground bunkers. You know that, right? Like NORAD in Colorado and all that. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna scurry like cockroaches into their caves. That's what they're going to do. And it's going to go boom, 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 and the Lord's coming back. That's how it's going to end. And whether it's man's boom, 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 or God's boom, 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 Revelation's got lots of boom. <laughs> and, and these depopulationists, these depopulationists, because they're all depopulationists, these people, they want the population... You know, if you take the Revelation equation of 8 billion, you get down to about 2 billion. So they'll get their depopulation. Be careful what you ask for when you want the Antichrist to be your king. And the delusion just gets stronger. The Bible tells us deception will increase in the last days, more and more. And then we're told in Second Thessalonians that when people reject Christ and they go for the Antichrist, because he's described in detail, only that which restrains will restrain until he's unveiled. So as Pastor Chuck Smith again used to say, I'm not looking for the unveiling of the Antichrist, I'm looking for the coming of Christ for his church. And I would say yes and amen. But nonetheless, it is so clearly said in Second Thessalonians that the man that common sense and proper biblical hermeneutics which is the study of the Bible in his context, is the Antichrist, the same man described in Revelation, the king who's like part of ten kings and three go down and one goes up and replaces them and then there's just one king left out of revived Rome, out of Europe, one king standing, one king to rule them all. Revelation tells us he has all the power of Satan. He has a false prophet with all the power of Satan that does all these things to tell the world to worship him. He controls everybody. He controls swift. He controls every monetary form by which you can withdraw any money, any cash of any sort. The Bible tells us that clearly. You cannot buy or sell without taking the mark. That's SWIFT, or something stronger and better than SWIFT, which, of course, is the electronic currency that most of the world governments are on. That's what he's going to do. And we're told that the world will worship him and bow down to him. And they'll take the mark so they can be fed by him. And in taking the mark, it's a religious identity by which there is a point of no return to be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that God will allow this because humanity rejected the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and chose to believe a lie, and he gives them over to full delusion. That's what God says in his word for the last king who rules all other kings. That's what this planet's moving toward. And that's why, you know, I listened to my study from Tuesday night, Today, I was like, wow, I was kind of worked up. You know, like, sounds like, I was in a good mood, you know. Unicorns and rainbows in Kauai, right? <clears throat> I was pretty, but you know, it's, it's intense, right? Everyone's intense. Everyone's intense right now. Everyone's wound really tight. We just came through all this other stuff. Now we got this. So I, I just, this is a great text to remind us, let Jesus be our king. Let him be the king in your heart, the king in your home, the king in this church, 
And as much as we go out and about, let people know that we're citizens of heaven. And we, we love all people. We're not here to make enemies. And it's not, are, are, are you, like when Joshua said to the, the Lord, command the Lord's army, are you for us or against us? Like we want people to be on sides. But what does the Lord, the Lord say? No, but as the command of the Lord's army, I've now come. Christ on the cross is for everybody. He's for everybody. And it's not for the church to kind of have to try and sift through everything. But we, we do want to let Christ guide us in our world to be king of our hearts, to be king of our time, king of our passions, king of our pursuits, king of, you know, like I have every day, I have the, the, the MIT, the most important thing. I want Jesus to be MIT in my life. Devotion with the Lord is the most important thing, but after like, what's the most important thing? I got to take care of this for my dad. I got to do this with the Lord. I got to take care of this for K-Wave. Like when you start a day, there's an MIT, the most important thing. And some days you might have five of them like I did today. But it'll keep you on track. And we want Jesus over all of it. Jesus over all of it. So there's a great text to remind us personally, because we're not a nation in a covenant with God like Israel was, but we are the church of Jesus Christ like great saints of old, like I mentioned with Corey Tim Boom. So I encourage and remind all of us, myself included, to not be moved, but to pledge allegiance to King Jesus. We're not asking the world or man to give us another king. We have our king. And as much as we can, we want to respect the kings that are there. But we do know all the kings do this, and they do that, and one king to rule all the kings. And then in the end... It's Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Because in his first coming on the cross, they said, we'll not have this man rule over us. Pilate said, behold your king. He goes, They're not, he's not our king. So Israel did this twice, and they did it when he was in the flesh, God in the flesh with them. He's not our king. This man will not rule over us. And Jesus said, there'll come a day when your women are weeping and this and that in Jerusalem and not one stone will be left upon another, and it came to pass in that generation. But in the book of Revelation, he says, behold, I'm coming. And everything in the back part of Revelation, his glory, the new heaven, the new earth, that's his kingdom. And when he comes, it says on his robe, he's the king of kings. And it's not like it's a great battle. He just shows up, light on, darkness out. Game over, kingdom established. So we pledge allegiance to the king of kings, who reigns at the right hand of the Father, who's coming in glory who died on the cross and shed his blood for us, who rose from the grave for our hope and justification, and is seated at the right hand of the Father and ever intercedes for us, and is coming. And behold, he says three times in the last chapter, I am coming, I am coming, I am coming. That's our king.